It's very cool to get a phone call and find out that Judge Judy has hired you for a job. I've been enjoying the benefits of that for the last six seasons on my show Hot Bench, but my next guest has been enjoying it for a lot longer than I have. You may know him as Officer Bird, bailiff on the three-time Emmy Award-winning Judge Judy show, where he has been the longest-running court show bailiff in history. But there's more to my friend Officer Bird than the calm he keeps in Judge Judy's courtroom. A noted philanthropist, he chairs the OK Program, an organization that addresses issues confronting young black men, and he's on the board of the faith-based youth program, Teen Center USA. He's also worked with me for several years on the Gravely Awards, the Black History Month celebration aboard the USS Iowa, which honors the life of Vice Admiral Samuel Gravely, the first African-American in history to command a Navy battleship. He is, quite simply, a great American, a great human being, and a wonderful friend. Please welcome Officer Bird. Welcome! Hey, what's up? Congratulations to you, sir, on your most recent Emmy nomination. I'm pulling for you. Tell us a little bit about your path. You were working in family court in Manhattan when you met Judge Judy. Yes. Did you know her when you were working in court together? Were you a bailiff in her actual courtroom then? Yeah. Probably the most interesting judge I worked with at that point was Judge Judy. I remember doing intake part with her. What's intake part? What is that Intake is uh, an arraignment part in family court. And... When you come into intake A, you know, they just kind of get you in, give you a date and ship you out, ship you over to the clerk's office. So whenever a judge would rotate into that part and she would have intake for that day, that judge would also have to do some of their cases, you know, that were ready to go. And you would have to at least start the trial. And just watching her go through her stuff, you know, she's one of the sharpest judges I've ever met. And I've met a lot of judges in my life. But just watching her move through that system in Manhattan Family Court, which, you know, I have no idea how many people they see per year, but it's a lot, a lot of people, you know, 8 million people in New York. So you can imagine the courts are like jam packed. And she just had a way of cutting through the nonsense, you know, because they're ready for trial and they're ready to demand this. And, you know, and she's just looking, going, listen, we got to keep this system moving. And so let's not have any crap here, counselor. Let's move along. You know, I think as somebody who's known her for a long time and certainly knew her before she was on her TV bench. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know her not as long or as well as you do, but I think we can both attest to the fact the judge who we see on TV, that's real. That's not a TV in brand. In the words of Flip Wilson, what you see is what you get. And that's how she was in Manhattan exactly. when you were working with her oh, in Manhattan. When she did the uh, 60 Minutes segment. They knew. I mean, they they had seen that there was something special about this judge, so special that we need to put her on 60 Minutes. We need to let the rest of the world know that she exists. And uh, I've since seen that interview and it's just her. You know, it's her then, it's her now. And the rest is history. She got her show and we both got jobs. That's right. That's right. That's right. But backing up from there, after you're working in family court in Manhattan, you then moved to the Bay Area. You moved to California and became a U.S. Marshal. In 1990, uh, I went to work for the U.S. Marshal Service as a court security officer there. Pretty much sort of like uh, 
getting my feet wet on the West Coast, you know, you know, having some job. And I did that for like three years. What was it like being a federal marshal? Were you pursuing fugitives across state lines? No, I was pursuing people across the lobby of the you know, <laughs> of 450 Golden Gate in San Francisco, the federal building. Uh, you know, it was actually just working as a court security officer in that capacity. You know, so I did that for three years. And then um, I got an opportunity to become a high school campus supervisor, some kind of way. I always wound up working with kids. I'm talking to Officer Bird. He is the bailiff on the Judge Judy show. We are now celebrating his fourth Emmy nomination. But before he became a famous TV bailiff, Officer Bird is explaining to us your history working with kids. Yeah. So tell me about that. So a friend of mine at my church told me that they needed a campus supervisor at the high school that he was working at. And I wound up going to the uh, Monta Vista High School in Cupertino, California. And it was there that I had probably one of the greatest work experiences, uh, except for the, the Judge Judy show, mind you. But I had this great experience working with high school kids. And I did that for about three and a half years. You know, there at the high school, I was known as the Velvet Hammer. <laughs> uh, so kids would come into my office and they would sit down and they would start confessing stuff. And I'd go, you know, I'm just asking you in here to, you know, to find so out, were they confessing? to find out if you're, if you're happy with your grades. You so wait, were they confessing because they thought that some they, harsher punishment was coming? So they were uh, like, uh, we should just tell all. Apparently the word was on the campus that if you went into my office, you were going to wind up telling stuff anyway. So you might as well just <laughs> go on and give up. I was like, wow. You know, I was like, you know, this school couldn't be in the black community. All right. We ain't telling nothing. No how. No way. Just, you'd have a bunch of kids in your oh, class oh, just man. sitting they, there. Yeah. We're not talking to you. That's right. That's not true. You know, some of us will confess. Some of us will give it up. And then move. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Witness protection program. I'm talking to Officer Bird from the Judge Judy program. You and I both know how fantastic it is to have Judy Scheinlin offer you a job. Yeah, yeah. Tell me how you got yours. Wow. Um, so one day at this high school, I decided to take my uh, much needed coffee break. I used to read in the newspaper all the time. I used to read the gossip column. Liz Smith, who has since passed on, but I would read her gossip column and she would talk about what was going on in New York and on Broadway and in the movies and with different stars and everything. And I'm reading this column one day and I get to the end of the column and I notice a name that I know. And it says that Judge Judy Shinelin has written a book called Don't Pee on My Leg and Tell Me It's Raining. Shameless plug here. And a uh, great book, though. And uh, that they're developing a TV show for her. And so I just got excited about reading about somebody. I know, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you read somebody's name, you know, in the paper, you go, oh, my God, you know. And so I wrote her a letter to congratulate her. And I was kidding around in the letter. And I said, hey, if you ever need a bail, if I still look good in uniform. And that joke has turned into a 23-year career. She called me. She got my number from some friends of mine that I stayed in contact with at uh, Manhattan Family Court. And she called me and she said she appreciated the letter. And I know you were kidding, but we do need a bailiff. And you're already out in California. And that's where we're planning on doing the show. 
And she says, I remember you're kind of crazy. I said, yeah, I'm still kind of crazy. She said, well, if you're crazy enough to try this with me, I'll recommend you for the job. Sight unseen. I mean, you know, I could have been 900 pounds. Wow. You know, but she knew I was crazy back then. She busted me one time doing an impersonation of her on the bench. You were doing an impersonation of Judy and she walked in on it? she walked in on it. Oh, man. So (laughs) Thank God for a great sense of humor. So you (laughs) do a uh, few, though. Who else do you do? uh, Probably one of your favorites, Bernie Mac. I do Bernie Mac. Uh, Uh, Look, I got to do it PG because, you know, this is your show and everything. I won't be cussing. But I'm telling you right now, Uh, I can do Bernie Mac because I feel like it. You know what I'm saying? And the next time I see you, there's going to be a misunderstanding. Rest in peace, Mr. (laughs) Mac. Well done. There's another side to Officer Bird. Uh, One of my favorite impersonations back then was Archie Bunker. And I kept the courthouse laughing because I would go out and I would call the cases as Archie Bunker. Hey, Jace, can I get you? What you call it? Your your party's on Rodriguez. (laughs) How about, uh, is there anybody out there for Sepulveda? Huh? Sepulveda. You know, how long is these colored people going to sit there? How are we going to get the cases moving here? The judge is ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well and, done. Now, well now, done. Now, do you like Flip Wilson? I grew up watching Flip Wilson. Now, My I, parents loved Flip Wilson. I know. He was so cool. But, of course, I waited for every Thursday night. You know who I was waiting <laughs> for. Look, honey. I'm telling you, killer was coming through. Woo! One time for the killer. <laughs> you know, Friday night, uh, Saturday nights, I think, were, were reserved for, uh, let, let me tell you something, Rallo. You're going to get five of these across your lips. That's what we're looking at, right? Hey, Lamont, get over here, dummy. <laughs> A little Stanford and Son. A little Stanford and Son. But then, of course... Judy walked in on you once doing, doing an impression Judy. of Judy. So show us your Judy. Who sounded for me remarkably like Joan Rivers, you know. <laughs> oh, I tell you, oh, things are going crazy. Things are going crazy. My body's falling so fast. My gynecologist wears a hard hat. I'm telling you, <laughs> it's marvelous. You know. That's your Joan Rivers. Right. And so I throw in a little, you know, Judy. Uh, counselor. Counselor. Don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining, okay? I'm a truth machine. You know why? They don't keep me here because I'm beautiful. They keep me here because I'm smart. <laughs> oh, my friend, Officer Bird, you're beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And right. and and I'm going to tell you something, Tony. You are marvelous. I mean that uh, in the most sincere way, okay? And I, as I always tell my friends, I'll keep an eye out for you. <laughs> I mean that. Shaboing. <laughs> I'm talking to Officer Bird, bailiff on the Judge Judy show. I should also say to you folks that when I was first starting Hot Bench, Officer Bird was a great friend and mentor to me in kind of navigating the world of television and actually doing a job that is a real job and doing it in front of a camera. Because on my show, as on Judy, we are doing real cases. And isn't it funny, Bird? Like sometimes people say, like they can't get their heads around the fact that they are real people. For 23 years, it's been <laughs> stopping me in airports and in supermarkets. You know, those cases ain't real, right? I go, yeah, they're real. You know, no, no, no. Them people can't be that stupid. I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, no, those people are people, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and you're there. You've been a bailiff for Judy for 23 years. I, I don't 
mind letting folks know that there's other security on the show for both Judy and for our show because people get nuts. I mean, sometimes like the cameras don't even catch how nutty people get. That's a whole other show. That's a whole other show, right? That's like after show, the after hours. That's right. Do you find yourself in situations with people where you're like, man, you are doing a small claims case on television. Take it back. You know, because I worked in Manhattan Family Court, okay, and you know, uh, in family court and the domestic courts, the emotions run high. You know, it's not necessarily that the people are criminals or anything like that. They're just regular people who have some issues and they want to be heard and they want justice. And having realized that it was a great preparation for doing Judge Judy because people come in there and again, their emotions are running high and they want her to listen to their story and they're, you know, they're adamant about their position. So most of the time I'm the calm to her storm. I'm the cool to her hot you know, so she's like just finished laying waste to them, you know. <laughs> she does lay waste. I, I, I feel like I'm walking over with a dustpan and a broom, just like sweeping them into the dustpan. Yes, you can step out now if you still have legs, you know. And they look for a little sympathy. So sometimes they look in my face, you know, and contrary to what people think, I keep hearing that I don't smile, but it's like, you know, I'm not supposed to have this grin on my face. You crack the a side, thing. like you crack a I, corner move. Yeah, yeah you it's know. It's like a corner. You're not supposed to be cheesing up there. You're a bailiff. But then a lot of times, you know, a lot of times when they're walking out, you know, they just kind of look at me like, "Uh, what happened here? Nah, don't worry about it. We'll talk about it when you get outside. It'll be fine. I'm Dr. Frazier Crane. I'm listening. You know, so. I've seen you do that. I love going to tapings of Judy's show. It's like going to master class. I'll see her. Like, really just shut somebody down. Um, You know, they're just saying something ridiculous. They've got no evidence. She just shuts it down. She will Mm -hmm. not, you know, give you a lot of room or a lot of time to just upload more nonsense. Mm -hmm. And so she shuts somebody down. And then it's like, as you say, it's like they're just deflated. The case is over. She's long left the bench. They're standing there looking sad. And then in comes Officer Bird. And it's like, you know, kind of like gently ease them in their pool of... Of sadness down and, and, out the door. In the midst of their dismay, I try to deliver a little dignity. You do give them a little on bit. On your way out. Yeah, you give them the On sense. your way out this way, to yeah. the right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's, that's become like the running joke on our show. It's like, no, 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 the other door. I want to shift gears for a minute. Sure. I'm talking to Officer Bird from the Judge Judy Show, my great friend, also a great philanthropist. You are chair of the OK program. Yes. Bird, tell us what the OK program is. The OK program is a black male mentoring program that was started in the Sacramento area back in 1990 by a then deputy sheriff by the name of Donald Norcross. It's a wonderful program that utilizes black officers to mentor young black males. And so black officers, black law enforcement, black law enforcement officers from the sheriff's departments to police departments. We're in 10 different cities in nine different states and counting. 
And it's wonderful because especially during this time when there is so much heat between the black community and law enforcement community, the OK program not only bridges the gap between black men and young black males, but it bridges the gap between the law enforcement community and the black community at large. And so it's a wonderful opportunity for us to see what happens when those who police our communities look like us. You know, something that you and I have talked about is this real disconnect between the African-American community and the law enforcement community. You've met my cousin, Captain Marissa Barnes from the Kansas City Police Department. It's something that she and I have talked about. She's been on the show. We're in Kansas City, by the way. And the OK program is in Kansas City. So shout out to OK um, and the Kansas City Police Department. Mm -hmm. But. It's troubling, don't you think, that so many people, both inside and outside of the African-American community, assume that there must be this natural conflict between African-Americans and law enforcement. And look, we know that there have been certain instances of misconduct, police misconduct and the like, but we really have got to rebuild trust. How can we start doing that? Um, A couple of things. When we started putting officers in vehicles, that really, really separated them from the community. Instead of just having them walk the beat, you mean? Yeah, walk the beat. Get to know the people, you know, get to know Mrs. Johnson and Mr. Jenkins, who owns the store down the block, and young Jamal, you know, get to know the people in the community because you're outnumbered. (laughs) You're really outnumbered. And these are the people that you want in your corner. If anything goes down, if all of a sudden a horde of, you know, a hundred hoods come running through that particular neighborhood looking to do all kind of damage, you're going to want the people who are there to look upon you favorably and sympathetically, you know. And so that's one thing. The other thing is for us to have more people who occupy living space in our communities, you know, a lot of jobs particularly government jobs, require you to at least live within the city limits Mm -hmm. in order to have a job there. Of course, they do it mostly in regards to the tax base. But think about it. If the person who's looking out for your neighborhood or who's there to serve and protect, if that person is from your community, I don't care what color, but if they're from your community, they live somewhere around you then they take more pride in that community. They know that community better. They feel a part of the community and the community feels like they're part of it. One of the things that I think is so wonderful about the OK program is that it has the potential to counter what a lot of people describe as the adultification of young black kids. You know, Mm. people look at our five, six, seven-year-old kids And there's a lot of data on this that indicates that when people see young black kids, they see them as older. They see young black boys as threatening and dangerous. They see young black girls as not as innocent or aggressive. It's like we've turned them into grown folks Mm -hmm. when they're just kids. How do we give our children their childhoods back? Um, It's a Pandora's box type of situation. Once it's open... It's pretty hard to shut it back. You know, our kids are now connected by phone. 
Okay, you know, you and I grew up, if you wanted to make a phone call, you asked for permission, Yeah. you know, and I remember when I was starting to date and, you know, you'd be on the phone and a mother would come in there and you're on the phone and you ain't saying nothing, you know, you just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. My mother would be like, are you talking to her? Yeah, 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 I'm talking to her. Well, then talk or get off my phone, you know, <laughs> and and you had you had the one line in the house, you yes. know, you know, you might have two phones, but they were the same line, you know. So now everything is open. Everything is available. And that availability causes our children to be able to look at adult situations that formerly we might have been able to keep them from. You know, when my kids were young, my ex-wife was adamant about blocking on the television certain uh, like like I remember I wanted to see an R-rated movie and I had to go and ask her what was the code because you know, <laughs> she's like, no, they won't be watching any R-rated movies. Or, you know, if they were going over their friend's house, she made sure to talk to the parents like, yo, they're not to be up at night just watching any old thing. You know, so you exercised some type of control. You wanted to keep them children for a while so that they could develop naturally and organically the habits of adults. Nowadays, it's all out there. It's all out there. Again, how do you put it back in the box? You can't. So what you have to do is you have to actually give them more information. Let's put it this way. If the devil is over here and he's got all this stuff out there. What are you going to counter it with? Like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't look at that. Uh-uh. Don't look at that pornography. No, don't smoke that. No, 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 no. Come here. Let's sit down. Let's be open and honest about what you're going to be facing and realize that your choices are your own and your consequences are your own. That's what we have to do. And it's rough, man. I mean, like, we can't let them have a childhood. Chris Rock said, man, the space is getting smaller and smaller. Said, it used to be go from this block to that block. Now you can go from this gate to that gate. So after a while, see the kitties just hopping in a circle, you know? So you can't, you can't keep them from what's out there, but you can prepare them for what's out there. And that's one of the issues that I have with our schools and our institutions, our religious institutions, our recreational institutions, is we don't have a rite of passage. Mm. Kids don't know when it's time to stop being kids. So what we're doing is we're kind of guessing they may be around 13, 14 years old, but either we're expecting more from them or we're expecting less from them. You got to pick your poison. What's it going to be? If we're going to expect more from them, let's arm them with more knowledge. Let's give them more wisdom that they can draw their conclusions from. They can make their choices, informed choices. But if we don't do that, then what we're doing is we're sending them into a gunfight with a knife and going, hey, do the best you can. Talking to Officer Bird, bailiff on the Judge Judy Show, chairman of the OK program, an organization that provides mentoring and other opportunities for young African-American men. Tell me, how is the OK program breaking down some of the barriers between law enforcement and the African-American community, especially the kids in our community who we need to look up to cops and who we need to respect cops and who need to feel like they are respected by cops? How do we start to heal some of these very open wounds? One of the things is there's a saying, uh, kids don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so one of the things is, okay, when our police officers are being trained, it's a 
us and them sort of attitude, you know? So your suspects are everybody out there. Everybody out there is a potential danger to you. And so now we're going to put this uniform on you. We're going to put this bullseye on you, you know, because remember now you got the uniform on. Everybody knows who you are, but you don't know who everybody is. So we send you out there and we're sending you into enemy territory, mm. right? You don't know these people. There'll be some people that are friendly, but most of the people you're going to have back. to watch your back. Well, when you walk into that situation, how high strung are you? How nervous are you? How panicked do you have to be? And then you're armed and you got this badge on and everything like that. But that badge ain't going to save you if somebody means you harm. So the best thing for you to do is to come to know those people in that community. That's what happens with the OK program is that the kids get to see a law enforcement officer who cares about them, you know, who's willing to share with them who he is. And I can't emphasize enough, not, not only for officers, but for teachers, coaches, Anybody who's dealing with kids, you got to realize something. They don't give a damn about who you are, okay, unless you give a damn about who they are. And so that's what happens in the OK program is that the relationship, that's what's promoted. Him coming out on a Saturday and spending time with these kids in that community, him going to their school and talking to their teachers and being a liaison between them and the community at large, you know, if somebody has a problem, hey, you can call me if you're having a problem. Yeah, you know, if somebody's trying to get my brother into this gang and stuff like that, I don't know what to do. Call Officer So-and-So because you know him and he cares about you. You know, I, I know this sounds sort of corny, but it's about love. If you think that the person that's duty-bound to protect and serve you actually has your best interest at heart, you don't mind having a relationship with it's him. It's going to change your whole perspective. It'll change, change the, the way whole... you walk down the street. Yep. It'll change the way you look at yeah. law enforcement who are serving, who are patrolling, who may ask you questions. And uh, you can't BS them. And you that's, can't that's, be... the, that's the other thing. You it, can't BS them because it, it's like, I'm from where you're from. Yes. I had the black mama who, you know, <laughs> like went upside my head when I spoke out of turn or disrespected somebody. You know, and I came to her with the same crap. Uh, Mama, uh, I, I, I failed because that teacher don't like black people. I remember telling my mother that when I was a kid. You know, my mother said, oh, OK, I tell you what, tomorrow morning we'll go down there and we'll have a discussion with that teacher. And I spent all night like wide awake, like, <laughs> oh, my God, she's going down tomorrow. And my mother would always say this, you know, and folks, this is not abuse. This is how black mamas raise their children. She said, oh, by the way, if you're lying to me, I'm going to whoop your butt in front of the class. <laughs> like, wait a minute. I didn't sign on for this. <laughs> you know. And the next day we're walking to school and I said, wait a minute, mom. I, I got to tell you something. It wasn't the teacher. It was me. It was me. I, I, and my mother just looked and she went, okay. And she turned and she started to walk back towards the house. And she went, oh, by the way, I turned around. She said, I'm going to whoop your butt when you get home. <laughs> it's like, at least it ain't in front of the class. <laughs> See, now we know where the velvet hammer that's, got that, it from. That's, that's it. That's it. Now Man, use my mother's style. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha!
I'm talking to Officer Petri Bird from the Judge Judy Show and the chair of the OK program. One of the things that's so great about OK, Officer Bird, is that you really are breaking down these barriers both ways. You know, you're providing an opportunity for young African-American boys to see cops who love and respect them. Mm -hmm. And you're also providing an opportunity on the other end. You know, law enforcement needs to see see kids outside of this context. You know, like you say, if you go into law enforcement and if in some instances there's this indoctrination, Mm -hmm. you know, that suggests that African-Americans are going to be the dangerous ones or the more aggressive ones, you really have to unlearn that. And the way you unlearn that is by exposure. So thank you for doing that. And I've got to give you a particular shout out because some people may know I've been a trustee of the Battleship Iowa Mm -hmm. for a number of years. And I co-host a celebration that honors Admiral Samuel Gravely, who's the first African-American to command a Navy battleship, Mm -hmm. first Navy fleet commander. He's many, many, many firsts. And my friend, Officer Petri Bird, has been at that celebration. He has brought his friends into that celebration. Uh, We honored Judge Maybelline Ephraim this past year because of an introduction that you made. So one, I want to thank you for that. It's important that people become more aware about a history that's lost. I think that it would help kids if they knew more about who and where they came from. Mm -hmm. Is there any little known figure in African-American history about whom you'd like to tell our listeners a little bit? Uh, Yes, I would like to tell the listeners about um, John Skippy Johnson, who invented peanut butter. No. Uh, (laughs) No, no, that, that is my friend, <laughs> Officer Bird. No, you know, <laughs> you know, I always got to be a little silly. Um, first of all, first of all, let me thank you for involving me with the Admiral Gravely Award Program. It's fantastic. It gives us insight into some history that heretofore we didn't really know. You know, and I'm so grateful to be able to be part of it. And when they said that you could nominate somebody, you know, who was effective in the community and everything like that, I immediately thought of myself, but I couldn't. No, uh, (laughs) no, I immediately thought of Maybelline Ephraim. She's a good friend and she is a a man. Phenomenal lady. When you you talk about involvement in the community, she epitomizes that. When you pose the question to me, earlier, so I don't want everybody to think that, oh, he's just talking off the top of his head. When you posed the question to me earlier about little known African-Americans in history, I was like, wow, you know, I thought about some that I knew sort of off the top of my head. And then I called a friend of mine who's on the radio, Tammy Mack. And I was at a, a viewing party for her last night. She was on this thing, Star, on Fox TV. But anyway, I just decided to pose it to her. I said, hey, Tammy, you know, give me one little known uh, black person in, in history that, yeah. And she immediately hit me back with Claudette Colvin. Okay. Hmm. So what people don't know about Claudette Colvin was months before Rosa Parks was arrested for not giving up her seat in Montgomery, Alabama, in protest of her civil right to sit where she wants to sit on a bus. There was this woman, Claudette Colvin. She was a teenager. She was pregnant and she refused to give up her seat and she was arrested. (laughs) This is crazy. She was charged with disturbing the peace and the usual stuff that you would figure, you know, you know, not cooperating with the law or whatever and assault. 
but she assaulted no one. In other words, it was an assault to this white lady's to have sensibilities. To have her to blackness have around? The, to have her refuse to give up her seat. And the weird part was that she was sitting in the black section. And traditionally back then, when the buses would fill up, you would have to give up your seat to a white person. Even and, if it and, was the and, black section. And you, right. And you couldn't sit next to them. So the bus driver came back there for or one, it would be for an one white lady, for one white lady, yeah, and said, oh, all four of you have to get up and move. And so three of them got up and Claudette Colvin refused to move. And uh, they didn't use her, you know, to trumpet the civil rights movement around because she was teenage and she was pregnant. And it was, you know, rumored that she was pregnant by a married man. So I think that everybody should know about her. This 15 year old girl who did it, who did it before Rosa Parks. They should know about her because your heroes aren't always perfect. But it doesn't stop them from being able to accomplish heroic things. And so, you know, to your listeners out there, if you think that, you know, that you're not worthy, check out Claudette Colvin, C-O-L-V-I-N. Check her out. And uh, and she's still alive. She's still alive and living in the Bronx, New York. And she was part of the NAACP youth program back then. It was reported that she said, you are violating my civil rights. I believe she said a constitutional right. And so she was uh, very, very heroic. And I would I'm like to find her. We should I'm, find going, her. I'm, going, yeah. I'm going to New York next week. You Let's know, I'm go going, find I'm going, her. Yeah. I'm, See if we can have her on. I would love that. That would be incredible. That would be a real honor. Mm. So I have one for everybody. Somebody who is a big hero of mine. And I just feel like we don't hear enough about him is Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls was born an enslaved man in South Carolina. He stole a Confederate battleship. He sailed it past a number of Confederate checkpoints. I want to say it was five, six, or seven. He was able to disguise himself as the white captain of the ship by putting the brim of the captain's hat over his face so they couldn't see him. That's how brothers break it That's down. That's how brothers break it down. <laughs> you have, you, he wore the hat. He wore a big brim and put his brim down. <laughs> he picked up his family on the way and then some of the other enslaved people who were also a part of this escape. Then they delivered this Confederate battleship, the planter, to the Union Army. And the battleship had been used by the Confederates to capture Fort Sumter. So Mm. when Robert Smalls, the escaped enslaved person, stole the Confederate battleship, he actually ended up also delivering to the Army a lot of valuable war material. And then he later on uh, served in the South Carolina legislature and bought the plantation where he had been a slave. So I encourage everybody, like, let's all know a little bit more about everybody's history. We have got a beautiful history, all of us, and we would do better to remember more of it. To my friend, Officer Bird, you do me a great privilege by being on the show. Love what you do on TV. I love what you do in the real world. I love how you are bringing opportunity and access to people. Keep it up. I love it. Thank you. You're you're wonderful. And keep doing what you're doing. This This is beautiful. Thanks. Come back soon. I will. Thanks for listening to The Tanya Acker Show. If you like us, and I hope you do, please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave us a five-star rating and a review, and maybe I'll even have a chance to read it on the air. 
The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Our editor is Roland Tia. Our composer is Evan Cunningham. And our production assistants are Chris Embry and Rachel Robillard. Our production consultant is Mike Agavino, and we record our program at the Network Studios in Culver City. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. 